I'm slowly learning that Matt's trying to teach me that karaoke is a part of every Filipino gathering. Is this correct? It's, it's just that it's it, close. It's uh, it's it's always appropriate. Karaoke is a part of every gathering, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that um, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you ever find me singing karaoke. Um, so I love you all. Matt keeps telling me to become all things to all people, and I just I can't do it. Thank you, Ken, for shaking your head. <laughs> Ken's with me on this. Maybe someday Ken and I will do a duet or something like that. Doubt it. <laughs> but karaoke is always appropriate. The karaoke uh, to Filipinos is like is like coffee to me. Coffee is always appropriate. Uh, I love coffee. There's not a time of day, there's not a season of the year that it's not appropriate. If I'm sitting on the beach, I wouldn't mind having a cup of coffee. And a cup of hot coffee, it's, it's always good. Um, when you wake up in the morning, it's good. A little mid-afternoon, cup of coffee. Sometimes I'll hang out with Paul in his office, and he's always making that mid-afternoon, that 2.30, 3.30 cup of coffee. That's one of my favorite cups of coffee. It's great with dessert in the evening. It's, it's always appropriate. There's never a time where coffee is not appropriate. Now, why am I talking about coffee? Well, what, what I want to say is that in this passage, what James is going to tell us is that prayer is always appropriate. Like karaoke at a Filipino gathering is always appropriate, and like coffee is always appropriate, prayer is always, at all times, appropriate. We can always, 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 always pray. Our lives should be marked by prayer in all circumstances. Prayer is to fill in all of the cracks and crevices in our lives. It's to surround everything that we do. But, so often... It doesn't. We neglect prayer, don't we? Notice I'm saying we, I'm not saying you. We have bought into this lie that in order for time to be productive and useful, that we have to be doing something. And when we're praying, well, we're not doing anything. At least that's the lie that we believe. We assume that we are self-sufficient rather than understanding that we are completely dependent. To risk over-quoting Martin Luther, one of my favorite quotes by him is he says, he said one morning, I have so much to do today. I can't afford to spend less than three hours in prayer. And we think the exact opposite, don't we? I have so much to do today, I don't have time to pray. And that thinking is completely wrong. Or, or maybe maybe it's not that we, we neglect prayer, that we think that we're self-sufficient, but maybe we've just been soured by prayer. You know, we've asked and we've begged and we've pleaded for God to do something and it just feels like we have asked in vain, like He is not listening to us, that He doesn't hear, like our prayers are bouncing off of the ceiling. There's so many different things that go into why we are prayerless people, but but truth be told, if, if we're Christians, we would all say that we want to be people of prayer. When I read about people that were people of prayer, you know what I say? I want to be like them. I want to be a man of prayer. We as a church, we want to be people of prayer. And that's what James calls us to. He says prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate. And we as individuals, we desire to see God do things. We desire to see great things happen. And if we desire that, if we desire to see God glorified in our lives, then we must learn to be people of 
prayer. That's the only way that God is going to do anything powerful through us, is if we are dependent on him in prayer. Let me give you another great quote. A man named Samuel Chadwick is famously quoted as saying, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Know this, that I am preaching to myself this morning as much as to everyone here. Uh, Since taking on the responsibility as being one of the elders of this church, I've just been hit afresh with the fact that I have to be a person of prayer. God has been working on this in my heart, revealing prayerlessness, revealing self-reliance. And I've thought so many times, God, I, I just want to I want to be a man of prayer. And it seems that almost just recently I've, I've seen that if I want to be a man of prayer, then I need to pray. If we want to do that, if we want to be people of prayer, what, how do we become that? Well, we pray. It's not something that we desire and we're going to magically transform into people of prayer all of a sudden. This message is not going to turn you into a person of prayer. If you desire to be a person of prayer, then James says to us, prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate, so pray. As we look at James 5, we're going to read verses 13 through 18. Uh, Realize in the midst of these messages, it's hard. We're taking these chunks right out of the middle of books of the Bible. I hate doing that. I wish we could just... Preach straight through James, and yet there's times where this is appropriate. So I want to read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, and then we're going to consider from this passage five encouragements to pray. The main idea is prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate. Prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate, and then James gives us five encouragements to pray. So James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So five encouragements to prayer. Let me give you the first two as almost one point, but they're two separate things, and they're found in verse 13. The first one is, pray when you are suffering. Pray when you are suffering. And the second one is, pray when you are rejoicing. Pray when you are suffering. Pray when you are rejoicing. I feel like this is almost James's way of saying what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is always appropriate. Pray when you are suffering. Pray when you are rejoicing. Pray when you're suffering. I think that's somewhat easy to do. If we're Christians and suffering comes into our lives, 
that is a response. It, it's, it's what we want to do. We want to pray. And yet sometimes it isn't always what we automatically do. Sometimes we, we wallow in our suffering. Sometimes we just tell everyone on Facebook about it. I saw a great bumper sticker. It said, um, face your problems, don't Facebook them. <laughs> Facebook can become an outlet for people to complain about suffering in their lives. Or it's an outlet for people to talk about rejoicing in their lives. Those are the two main things that make up status updates, in my opinion. In my, um, you know, this isn't a formal survey of any kind, but it's either people complaining about something or people rejoicing about something. And I think very often as Christians, it's easier for, easy for us to tell everyone else about what's wrong in the world or tell everyone else about what's right in the world instead of immediately going to God and saying, God, I'm facing this trial facing this suffering? Is God the first person that we go to? Do we go to our knees first when we face suffering? Or when blessings come into our lives, do we first automatically say, this is from God? What did the song we just sang say? It says, every joy or trial falleth from above. Every joy or trial falleth from above. That's James Chapter 1, again, it would be beautiful if we had just gone through this entire book. But James it is very clear that, that God brings testing into our lives. And he tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of temptations and trials. Everything that comes into our lives, suffering, joy, pleasure, happiness, they're all from God. And so our immediate response should be to go to God in prayer. And maybe to say, God, I am suffering. Help me. Or it may be to sing praises, as verse 13 says. To say, God, this is from you. It's not something that I've done. It's not something that I've worked by my hands. It's a blessing from you. I was listening to a song yesterday by a Christian artist, and he, the song is called um, Help Me, Thank You. And it says, these are the two best prayers I know. It's this jaunty little tune. And he says, the two best prayers I know are help me and thank you. I feel like that's almost what James is saying here. If you're suffering, say, help me, God. And that's a prayer. It doesn't have to be a formal prayer. The prayer can be, help me, God. Or it could be if you're cheerful, the prayer is, thank you, God. Thank you. These prayers and, and prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of, of joy, prayers of, of saying, God, this is going wrong. Please help me in this. They should mark every aspect of our lives. They should seep down into every crevice of our lives. Prayer is always appropriate. Prayer, pray when you are suffering. Pray when you are rejoicing. The next one is, is pray when you are sick. Pray when you are sick. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Now, and before we read them, let me just say that We've got a lot of questions to answer for verses 14 and 15. James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Here's some questions I have that we need to at least address briefly um, from these verses. First of all, what does James mean by the word sick. And so we're going to talk about that. Next one, what is meant by anointing with someone with oil? 
It's not something you hear every day. Next, does this, because it sounds like it, does this guarantee healing? That's the way James talks, doesn't he? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Is that what he's saying? Does it guarantee healing? And another question is, is sickness always the result of sin? That's at the end of verse um, verse 15. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So is there always a direct correlation between sickness and sin? Let's address these four questions, at least briefly. I won't answer them all probably, but we'll do our best. What does James mean by the word sick? Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? It could also be translated weak. Is this simply weakness? Is it um, talking about a, a spiritual weakness? Or is it talking about physical sickness? It's hard to really know. Um, it could just mean physical weakness. It could mean a, a spiritual weakness. It could mean all of the above. I think it's probably best understood, though, as physical sickness. And let me tell you why. It says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. What seems to be indicated is that this person is so sick that they are not able to be a part of the gathering. And so they call for the elders of the church to come to them, presumably in their home, to pray over them. So they are, they're sick. I mean, they are really sick. And they need someone to come and pray for them. They need the elders to come and pray. Now, does that mean you have to be really sick before you call the elders to come to you? I mean, do you have to be bedridden before you say, elders, come and, and pray for me? No. Um, this is a practice, and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about what this practice looks like, but this is something that I've seen done in churches where someone is at the church, and at the end of the service they'll say, I'm facing this sickness. Will you pray for me? I'm going into the, the, the hospital tomorrow. Will you pray for me in this specific thing? I've also um, experienced this with, uh, with a brother who was facing addiction. And he said, I'm, I'm just weak in this addiction. Will you pray for me and pray that God would heal me of this, that he would relieve me of this addiction that's plaguing my life? And so I think it, it spans across even what, what is meant here in this passage. But I think specifically he is talking about physical sickness. So he says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to come to pray over him, anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord. What is meant by anointing someone with oil? Some say that this could be medicinal. You think about the Good Samaritan. You remember that the um, after the, the man had fell among thieves, that the Samaritan comes and when he ta- takes him, he, he brings him and he pours in oil and wine as a medicinal thing, something to heal him. But it also could mean just this, this symbolic... Um, setting apart for special blessing, to place oil on this, this person's head as, as an anointing, as, as something just as a, as a symbolic thing. You might think of it as communion, that this is a symbol that represents something. And this symbol is, is to ask God for special blessing and special healing on this person. So what does this look like? The verse says, He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I think it means what it says. It says if someone's sick, they should call the elders of the church. So the elders are called. The elders go to this person's house. They pray over the person, probably laying hands on that person, anointing them with oil. Does that have to be some kind of special oil? No. I think it could be olive oil. It could be 
canola oil, could be peanut oil. It doesn't matter. The oil is not what's significant here. The, it's just this setting apart for special blessing. I think that we should do this as a church, as elders. I think you should say, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church to come and to pray for you and, yes, to anoint you with oil as a means of special blessing. It's not, there's no healing effect in the oil. There's nothing particularly special about the elders, and we'll talk about that in a, in a second. But I think this is something that we are to practice. Now, here's the question, though. If we do this, does that guarantee that you're going to be healed? Because that's what verse 15 makes it sound like, doesn't it? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Man, what do you do with that? I mean, it, it sounds like sounds like magic. If you call the elders of the church and they come and they anoint you with oil and they pray over you, you will be healed. Now, one way we can think about this is it's almost like a, James is said to be very similar to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, where things are stated something like, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is usually true. Is that always true? No. And you might say that about this, that most of the time, this prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Is it always true? Does God always guarantee healing in this life? No. I, I don't think that, that, I think we would be going outside of, of Scripture to say that that is true. There is There are sicknesses that are not healed. We can think about Paul. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? He prayed, and he prayed to God. And what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is going to be made perfect in this weakness. I am not taking this thorn away from you. It is going to stay with you. So as elders, the elders come and they pray in faith that God would heal this person, but it does not guarantee that there will be healing. I'm going to nuance some of these things as we go. I just want to answer some of these questions to start off with, but... Um, and the last question is, is sickness always the result of sin? Uh, verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Is there a connection between the sickness and, and sin? So you, you are sinning, you are in sin, therefore you are sick. This physical ailment has come on you because you are sick. Is that what James is saying? No, I don't think so. And we, we know by just one little word, if, if he has committed sins, then they will be forgiven. It doesn't say because he's committed sins, they will be forgiven and therefore he will be healed. And we know this from scripture as well. You remember the man born blind. What did the disciples say? Was it this man's sin or the sin of his parents that caused him to be born blind? And what does Jesus say? It wasn't anyone's sin. This man was born blind so that I could show myself powerful in healing him. That was the reason he was born blind, not because of sin. But of course, sickness is the result of sin sometimes. 1 Corinthians 11, do you remember? that They, they were eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. They were not partaking of it with the reverence that it deserved. And what happened? There were some that were sick and there were some that had even died because they were sinning. And the sickness and the death were the result of sin. That's sobering, isn't it? When I get sick, I try to think, is this because of sin? 
Is there some unconfessed sin in my life? I think we need to go there. We need to say, God, is there, are you trying to get my attention about something that is in my heart that shouldn't be there? It's not always true. We don't want to get to the place where we say, I'm sick because I'm sinning all the time, and therefore we, we live under this, this low-level guilt every time we're sick. I don't want to say that at all. That That's not the point of this passage, but it is sobering to stop and to say, am I sick because of sin? Because that is the result of it. Sometimes. So those are some of the questions, but let me give you some positive just, just points taken from this, this practice of the elders being called to pray for the sick. It's, it's a beautiful thing when you think about it, isn't it? And the first thing I see here is that the elders of the church have a special role in the life of the church. The elders have this special role in the life of the church. Martin Luther, who we've talked about this morning, did not like the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw, I think was the phrase that he used. He did not like this um this is just to show you that not everyone's perfect. Um, but he didn't like the um, the emphasis on, on law that he felt was there. And I'm sure he didn't like this stuff either. This looks like a priesthood. You know, where the elders are coming and praying for the sick and where people are confessing their sins to other people. Eh, that had been a little touchy for him. This elevated role of the elders. The elders are to come. Oh, when the elders come, then healing can truly come. We've we've been really clear as we've gone through the trellis of the vine, haven't we? We've been trying to make this distinction that, that there is no distinction between the laity and the clergy, that, that we are all in Christ and that we all do the work of the ministry. But it's true that there is this special role that the elders are called to take part in. I think it's it's just that because they're supposed to be men of prayer. Paul and Joel and myself as elders of this church, we are to be men of prayer who pray for this church. Later on, we'll see that one of the ways that we are effective in prayer is by being righteous. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. I'm supposed to be righteous as an elder. I'm supposed to be walking in holiness. Joel, Paul, the same. And so therefore we come and we're to pray for people in that vein, that we are, we are already praying habitually for our people. We are in holiness. We're walking with the Lord in that way. And so therefore when we come, we pray in a in a powerful way. Is it? But but here's the the thing that I want to say. Second is that it's not the elders, and it's not the oil that causes the healing. Okay, it's the prayer of faith. You see that in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. It does not say, and the elders will restore the one who is sick. It does not say the oil will restore the one who is sick. It says, the prayer will restore the one who is sick. And what does the prayer represent? God. God is the one who restores the one who is sick. He uses the elders. He, he uses this, this unique symbol of oil. But he is the one that brings healing. So the purpose of this is to, is to not bring attention to, to some, you know, some oil magic potion that we're putting on people's heads. It's not to bring attention to the elders. It's to bring attention to God as we come to him and say, God, this person is sick and you can heal them. We ask that you would do it. So the elders of the church have a special role, but it's not the elders and it's not the oil. It's the prayer. It's God who brings the healing. And the other thing I think that we need to take from this is that God 
heals those who are physically sick. God will heal those who are physically sick. Do we pray believing that? Do we believe that God can heal the physically sick? Yes. Should you call the doctor? Yes. But should you call the elders? Yes. We must do both. We must do it in faith, the prayer of faith, that we truly believe God can heal the sick. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, whether with doctors or without doctors, he can do it. He can do it with the elders or without the elders. He can do it with oil or without oil. But what he's called us to do is to pray. And he says, I will heal the sick. Healing has been so distorted by certain segments of Christianity that we have we've, we've pushed it away. We've said we don't want anything to do with that. But I think James calls us and he says, this is what he says to us, the prayer offered in faith will restore, will heal the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If God chooses not to heal, we still worship him. And we do it, and I think what's so unique about this, and I don't want to push it too far, but I think the gospel is, is very clear in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore. You know what that word could also be translated as? Save. The prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will Raise him up. That word raise him up is the word that's used for the fact that Jesus has been raised up from the dead. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The prayer offered in faith saves. When we come to God in faith, we ask him to forgive us of our sins. If we confess our sins, there is forgiveness. And the prayer offered in faith saves the one who is sick with sin and we are raised up to new life. Everything is a model of the gospel in some ways. And again, I don't want to push that too far, but just those words, save, raise up, forgiveness, that's the gospel. And it's seen when God does it in, in the healing of the physical body, but even more clearly it's seen when we come to God in faith. We trust in him alone for salvation. He saves us. We pray to him. He saves us and he raises us up and gives us new life and forgives us. Again, not because of good things that we've done, not because of special uh, things that we have that we have earned salvation with, but because of God's grace and because of faith. Faith alone is how we are saved. So let's think about some of these other encouragements. So the first was pray when you're suffering. The second, pray when you are rejoicing. The third, pray when you are sick. And again, I, I confess I did not answer every question in those passages. We can talk about it more. But the the fourth one is pray with one another. Pray with one another. Verse 16, Therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the power of prayer, in light of the fact that we should pray at all times, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Pray with one another. You'll notice that the title of the sermon is Pray with One Another. I didn't say that the title of the sermon was confess your sins to one another 
I didn't want to put that in print and have everyone leave because they didn't want to talk about how they were about confessing their sins to one another. That's something, it's not something we typically do, is it? James says, confess your sins to one another. I confess my sins to God. Why do I need to confess my sins to someone else? That doesn't sound like anything I really want to sign up for. Why would we confess our sins to one another? I think the point here is that it helps us to understand the depth of our sin and the beauty of God's forgiveness. When we confess our sins to God in prayer, he forgives us. But it's hard to sense sometimes how we have sinned, how we have grieved God's heart. Have you ever confessed your sins to another person, though? Have you ever sat down and had to tell someone that you have sinned in a specific way? That's a sobering thing. Now, it's not exa- When we confess our sins to God, He forgives us. You don't have to confess your sins to someone else in order to receive forgiveness. But this is a blessing that God gives us to come to someone, to confess our sins, to admit where we have been wrong, and to have them say, that is wrong, but God forgives you. Sometimes things that are, are faceless. You think about email. Someone can send you an email and they could say something terribly nasty, something they would never say to you in person. But if you were sitting across from them, they would they would never say that. Sometimes I think we treat prayer that way. That we come to God and it's as if because we can't see him, we just say, oh God, you know, forgive me for this terrible thing that I did. And he forgives us, yes. I think he's also given us the grace of confessing our sins to one another. Because if I have to confess that same terrible thing to my wife, then suddenly it's a little bit harder. I don't really want to do that. But when I do that, I understand the depth of my sin. I understand the effect of my sin, that it doesn't just affect me. It's not something that's just wiped away in an instant. There are effects to my sin. i got to be careful here. And I don't want to make something sound like um, like you have to do this or that there's this almost this priesthood. You have to confess your sins to someone else. We confess our sins to God. And God forgives us of our sins. But he has given us the grace of confessing sins to one another. It's almost like this oil. It's, a, it's symbolic. It helps us to understand God's grace. And not only does it help us to understand it, but it breaks the hold of that sin. If you've ever experienced confessing something that you have that you have continually struggled with in your life, if you confess that sin to someone else and you expose it to the light, and someone else knows that you're struggling with something, it 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 causes some sort of release because it causes some sort of accountability. Someone knows the things that I'm struggling with, and I can confess it to them, and, and they, they understand, and they, they walk through that with me. They help me to understand the forgiveness of God. They help me to, to, to begin killing that sin in my life. Confessing sins to one another is terribly hard, but it is a beautiful thing that God has given us. As a church, I would hope that we can grow to love one another in this way, to love and trust one another in such a way that we would be willing to confess our sins to one another. Not because that causes us to receive forgiveness, but because it helps us to understand the depth of our sin, to understand the depth of God's grace, and to break the hold on sins that that harm us continually. 
he then says to pray for one another. That's fairly self-explanatory, but it follows with confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Again, that, that healing is there, that there is a connection at times between sin and and sickness, and that if we confess our sins and pray for one another, there will be healing. I think this also releases us from thinking that the elders are the only people that can pray for other people. You can call anyone to come and pray for you. You can call anyone to confess your sins to. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you come and you say, listen, I've messed up in this way. When you pray for me, we can all pray for one another. I mean, what does this look like? I think there are formal times where we sit down and we say, you know, you may have someone who you trust and you say, you know, let's get together every other week and just talk about about life. Let's talk about what we're struggling with. Let's pray for one another. Let's read God's word together. It's someone that you trust and that you say, I'm going to bear my life to you. I give you permission to ask me questions about these things that I struggle with. And I will tell you the truth. And we will pray for one another. And we're going to be in this relationship where there is transparency and openness that causes us to, to continue to fight for the fight for holiness in this walk. There's formal times, but I think there's informal times where we're just standing around, we're sitting at potluck, and we're talking about life. And I just say, you know what? This week has been really hard. I've, I've struggled with, with anger this week. I've just been an angry person this week. Will you pray with me about that? It's just been something that's been on my heart. And, um, and someone else might say, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I've felt that too this week. Or, or they may say, you know, I've I've really, uh, you know, I've struggled with this this specific addiction or I've struggled with with this sin it's this sin that so easily besets me it's something that just is always in my life and those opportunities just to, to say here's where I'm, I'm struggling will you pray for me will you pray for me right now will you pray for me throughout the week those are good conversations not easy conversations but this is what life in the body of Christ looks like confessing sins to one another praying for one another. Where else, where else are you going to do that? You're not going to do it at the workplace. You do everything that you can to hide your sins. That's what we do as people. We, we don't want anyone to know what's going on in our lives. We don't want anyone praying for us because we are self-sufficient. We can do everything on our own. And if I ask you to pray for me, it's admitting that I have needs. But as a church, we come and we say, listen, I sin every day. I sin every minute. Let me tell you some of the sins that I committed this week. Will you pray for me? Help me grow. I don't want to be the person that I am. There's caution within that. There are sins that should be confessed publicly, and there's a lot of sins that should not be confessed publicly. There are sins that you need to confess to someone else, and there's sins that you confessing to someone else will probably cause problems for that other person. I'll say this, when it comes to confessing sins to one another, usually it's best done with men confessing sins to men and women confessing sins to trusted sisters. Okay, so this isn't something that we should, um, that, that I would say, um, besides my wife, I don't think I'm going to go to another woman in the church and confess my sins to them. I don't think that's healthy. Maybe in a broader context, that's okay. But as we think about these things, we're developing deep relationships. I also don't think it's wise to pray one-on-one -on -one with another person of the opposite sex. 
On Sunday evenings, we pray together in, in groups that are men and women very often, but there's at least three. Don't get caught in the trap of praying with someone, with a, a man praying with another woman or a woman praying with another man. That is a very deep um, thing that you do. I pray with my wife one-to-one. I don't think it is wise for us to pray with others. Not that I don't love my sisters in Christ. You'll hear that. I will pray for you as your pastor too. But I think we need to guard ourselves because prayer is a very intimate thing that we do with God and especially if we do it with someone else. Those are just some practical cautions, I think, from this. But, but don't let all these cautions, and you know, I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm stepping around this thing. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. This is something that God has called us to do and that James is calling us to do here. Pray with one another. So we pray when we're suffering. We pray when we're cheerful. We, we pray when we're sick. We pray with one another. And just this final beautiful encouragement is to pray like Elijah. Pray like Elijah. Look at verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced his fruit. I love verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know what that means? Elijah was just like you and me. It means Elijah was nothing special. The power that Elijah had was because of God, not because of Elijah. But there are some things that we can learn from Elijah. If you feel like your prayers are are ineffective, if you if you feel that ceiling prayer, you know, where you pray and it bounces off. How how did Elijah pray like this? He was a man with a nature like ours, which means that that we can all pray like Elijah. It's all within our capability to do that. You are not lacking anything in and of yourself to pray like Elijah. But what was special about Elijah? It says he prayed how? Earnestly. He was fervent in prayer. I went back to 1 Kings 17 and 18 and 19. and You read about how Elijah prayed. You remember when the widow's son died, he prayed that God would raise that boy from the dead. And he, he laid on him. Do you remember how many times he laid on him? Three times he laid on this boy before he raised from the dead. I always thought there was some sort of, I, I didn't understand why, but as I think about it, I think he was praying. He prayed once and he got up and the boy didn't raise from the dead. And he prayed again and he didn't. And he prayed a third time and the boy was raised from the dead. He was fervent in prayer. He was asking that God would do something. The reason I think that in part is because when he sends the servant, if you remember, after he destroys all the, the prophets of Baal, he then goes up to the mountain. This is when he prays for the rain to come. And there's the servant with him, and he prays. And he prays one time, and he says, go and look and see if you see a cloud coming. And the servant goes and says, I don't see anything, Elijah. So he prays again. You know how many times he sends him? Seven times. Because Elijah was fervent in prayer. He said, I'm going to pray until this happens. And finally, the servant comes back and says, there's a little cloud. Elijah, there's something coming. And Elijah says, go tell Ahab that the rain is coming. Elijah was fervent in prayer. He did not stop until God answered his prayer. I believe that God is in control. And I believe that we should pray, Lord, We ask this, but not my will, 
but yours be done. But don't get there too quick. We always pray in accordance with God's will, but have we labored in prayer? Or do we pray flippantly and then just say, not my will, God, but yours be done? That's always on our hearts. We always know that God is going to do whatever he wants. But have we labored in prayer? Have we been like the the woman who continued to pester the king until she got what she wanted? I was listening to a sermon and it talked about how Jesus continually says that we should be like little children when we pray. You know how my kids ask for every, for something? Continually. I mean, I, I love them, but sometimes they, they pester. They ask and 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 they ask until they get what they want. And Jesus says, pray like little children. That's how we are to pray. We're to pray fervently. We're not to, to cease praying. That, that's hard to do. But I think that's one of the secrets, if you want to call it that, to the way that, that Elijah prayed. He was fervent. And there's this balance between fervency and surrender to God's will. But, but it's very easy to just come over here and say, well, God's going to do whatever he wants. Therefore, I'm not going to pray as hard as I should. We need to get on our knees, get on our faces, and ask God to do what we want him to do. To pray with fervency. I need to go quick. He was righteous. It says there that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then Elijah is used as the example. He was a a man who was righteous, who was holy before God's sin can block our prayers. First Peter 3, 7 says that if husbands are not treating their wives correctly, it hinders their prayers and sin can hinder our prayers. So we need to be righteous before God. But in all these things, Elijah was effective. He was fervent and he was righteous and therefore he was effective. He prayed for rain. And it, and it came. He prayed that the rain would stop and it, and it stopped. If you prayed for rain, right now, you prayed, God, I pray that it would rain in Africa where they're experiencing this drought. And, and you turned on the news tomorrow and it was raining. Would you believe it was because you prayed? I didn't experience I was looking for a desk chair. This is so silly. And I went to Office Depot and they were having a sale on desk chairs and I just didn't want to spend the money. I didn't feel like I, it just didn't seem right. So I said, well, I want to pray that God would just provide us with a desk chair at a good price or even for free. And um, Andrea's sister and, and our brother-in-law had a desk chair. And they gave it to us. This must have been, what, maybe three weeks later or something like that, four weeks. It was a little while after. Can I be totally honest with you? I totally forgot that I had prayed that. I prayed, it was in my, my, my journal, I prayed God provide with the desk chair, I want to see, I don't know, it just it was so simple, it was just something silly, it was something I was just asking God for, and he provided it. And it took about a few days of having that, that Andrea looked at me and said, you remember you were praying that God would provide a desk chair, and, and he did. So silly, but, but I forgot. I think we do that. And I think we're scared to pray big things, because... What if God doesn't answer? What if it? What if it's not His will? Then, then I'm just going to get frustrated in my prayer life, and I don't, I don't want to be frustrated. What did Elijah pray? He prayed, God, I would like it not to rain for three and a half years. That's a big, 
bold prayer. There's only one person that can answer that prayer. It's the person who causes the rain to come. He prayed to God and he believed that God would do it. He prayed fervently. He prayed as a righteous man. And it was effective. And you know what? He was a man with a nature like ours. I'd like to be just foolish enough, just childlike enough to pray like Elijah. I would love for our church to be filled with just this unabashed faith that we would say, we're going to pray fervently that God would do something. We're going to trust in God's sovereignty, yes, but we're going to keep these things in tension. We are going to pray that God would move, that God would do something big, that God would that God would heal marriages, that God would... Um, that he would heal people, that God would save friends and neighbors and family members that we know, that God would do things that we're scared to pray because we just don't know if he's going to do it. But let's pray that he would do it because he can. And then we're going to surrender to his will and say, yes, God, you do whatever you want. I want to pray big things like that for Grace Fellowship Church, too. We are little, yes. We are a church with a nature like every other church, I guess you could say. There's nothing that God can't do if we would surrender to him and ask him to, to do something. What do we want? We want his will, don't we? We want people to come to know Christ as Savior. We want them to grow in him. Let's pray that he would do it. And let's believe that he's going to do it. Let's be fervent in prayer. Let's be like Elijah and ask for something big and believe that God can do it. And if he doesn't do it, that's okay because he's sovereign. But let's pray with fervency. Let's pray with righteousness in our hearts and let's be effective in the way that we pray. Again, I want to be totally honest. I am preaching to myself and I was so excited to come to James 5 because I feel like God is is helping me to learn this and I want to say, would you all help me to learn this? Let's pray and in the way that we pray, let's just actually believe that God hears us. Actually believe that he can do it. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed for something big, and God did it. And you are just like Elijah. We would pray with fervency. We would pray with righteousness in our hearts. We would pray believing that God can do something. I believe that he will. So, this sometimes in looking at a passage like this, as briefly as we have, I feel like a brought up a lot of questions and maybe not answered them. But I just want to say that I think that the main point here is that prayer is powerful and it is always appropriate. And practically, we need to confess our sins to one another. We need to pray for one another. And I want you to know too, as a church, as elders, that we want to pray for you. We love you. We desire to to, if you are sick or if you just feel weak in something and you say, I want the elders to come and pray. We're not magical. We're not going to work something amazing, but God can do something. And God has given us this blessing and this instruction. And we want to do that as elders of this church. And so if for any reason, you say, I, I just love the elders to come and pray for me. Even after the service today, if you want to approach one of us and say, would you guys just gather around me and pray for me about this specific thing? We would love to do that. I've gone way too long, and I apologize. But let's pray together to the God of the universe. 
Lord, forgive us for just a lack of faith. Help us to know the balance in these things. We want to believe deeply about who you are. We believe, Lord, that you can heal. We believe that, that you're the one that causes the rain to come and the rain to stop. We believe that no one is going to come to faith in you unless you are drawing them, unless you are the one that's doing that work. We believe, Lord. Help us to pray in accordance with those things, to recognize that we are just people like Elijah. But Lord, if we would pray with fervency, we're praying to the God of the universe. We're praying to you, Lord, who can do all things. Would do great things in our lives, not for our glory, but so that people would come and say, who is this God that you are praying to? He must be the one true living God. Well, we want to see that happen as individuals. We want to see that happen as a church, that you would do great and mighty things. Again, not for our glory, Lord, but for your glory alone. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you in the name of Jesus. There's no other way that we could come. As righteous as we can strive to be, we come in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousness. And we ask, Lord, to grant this prayer. Lord, make this church a place of prayer. Make us all men and women of prayer. Do that, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.